Let's pray. Father, in great anticipation for our experience of your resurrection, we trust in you this morning that you intend to reveal yourself to us. You are an, an indescribable God, an inexpressible God. You are unfathomable, unthinkable, unsearchable. There is a depth to you that can't even be described with the word depth because that would signify that there is an end at the bottom of that depth. But you, you are infinite. For us to even gather any thoughts that could give us a slight indication of how grand and supreme and great and sovereign and glorious and majestic and beautiful you are, those thoughts will fail. To genuinely grasp the magnitude of you. And yet, because you are gracious and because you love us, you give us an expression of yourself that we can grasp. For in the fullness of Jesus Christ, you are pleased to dwell. And he is our tangible, real expression that we can know and relate to and understand. He is the means by which we know you, Father. So to this morning, as your word is opened, I pray that Jesus Christ would shine out of the pages of your word, that he would be magnified, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, that his glory would be seen, and that our praises and our worship and our hearts and our minds and our desires and the things we pursue would all be directed at Jesus, our Lord and our God. Do that work despite how we get in the way. We pray this in the only name that saves, the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. Easter is a holiday. The resurrection of Jesus is not. Easter is a holiday. The resurrection of Jesus is not a holiday, nor is it a tradition. The resurrection is life. And we have taken that life and we have traditionalized it and turned it into a holiday. Now, if you're starting to think, is he saying we shouldn't celebrate Easter? Nope, not what I'm saying. 
I think what we've done is traditionalized Easter, and in doing so, we have cut out some of the power that is in our lives through the resurrection because what it is meant to be is who we are in Christ. And instead, it has become an annual holiday. Such a holiday and so traditionalized that even the people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior celebrate it with us. Telling me that there is a distinction, I'm sorry, telling me that there is not a distinction between those who live resurrected and those who don't live in the resurrection, such a lack of distinction in the daily living of the resurrected life of Christ that those who don't know Christ can attribute themselves to the same group of people who say that they do. The resurrection is life because what the resurrection of Jesus does is it gives you life. And that life is meant to be expressed daily, not annually. I'm not saying you can't celebrate it annually. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a resurrection Sunday and celebrate Easter. Of course we should. After Jesus' death and resurrection and then his ascension. So after his resurrection, he returns, sees 500 people see his resurrected, the resurrected Christ. He speaks to his disciples and then he ascends to heaven. He ascends to be with the Father. He says, I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to be with you, teach you, and tell you what to say and what to do. And after that ascension, the church began to gather weekly what they called the first day of the week, which we call Sunday. And they began to gather weekly, like we still do today, to do what? To celebrate the resurrected Christ, to worship the resurrected Christ. So if we're going to be more biblical, Resurrection Sunday is every seven days, not every 12 months, right? And so... I'm not saying this to bash the concept of having an annual Resurrection Sunday and Easter. I'm not against it at all. I'm saying it because what today reveals is that there is a lack of today every day in the church. However, to, to give Easter itself, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, some... some the annual celebration, some credence, to give it some credence, that we have ancient documents from the early second century that tell us that the church began meeting annually specifically to celebrate his resurrection. This is not new. This has been going on for 2,000 years. So we have this historical reason to have Resurrection Sunday. But Jesus' resurrection is more than a holiday, and you know that. I don't think I'm teaching you something new. It is more than just a Christian tradition. It is life. Believing in the resurrected Christ doesn't need a command 
to celebrate him at least once a year because someone who believes in the resurrected Christ loves the resurrected Christ. They love Jesus. They believe in him. They trust in him. They follow him and they obey him. They don't need an annual reminder because Jesus is their life. They live the resurrection every day. Your daily exaltation of the resurrected Jesus is your Easter. Daily. So, it is not my aim today to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. My aim today is to show you that every day of the remainder of this year and every day of the remainder of your life should be a daily exaltation of Jesus' resurrection. So much so that this shouldn't be like, oh, Mark's preaching about the resurrection. This should be a part of our entire theology. The only reason this sounds, this idea of, I'm, I, I just said to you, it is not my aim to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. My aim is to show you that it should be daily. The only reason that sounds like a contrarian or contrary statement is because today is Easter. And if every day was a celebration and an exaltation of the life of Christ in your life, this wouldn't feel different. The way in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus is our daily exaltation of Christ and the way that we live for him. And what Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 shows us is the way in which you exalt the resurrection of Jesus daily is obedience. In Colossians 2 6, Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now this verse is essentially the Christian life in summary. Uh, receive Jesus and walk in him. Or another way of saying it is believe the gospel and obey the word. That's what that text, this is what this text means. Believe the gospel and obey the word. Or more biblical, Believe the gospel and believe the word, or obey the gospel and obey the word. Because obedience is belief. You cannot obey without belief. Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, without belief, you cannot obey. when you disobey, that's disbelief. And so how do we live out the belief in the, resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do we live out the belief of Christ died for my sins and rose from the grave? How do I live out my belief? By obeying that belief, by continuing in that belief, by following that, by, that belief, by obeying Christ, by obeying his word, by believing him. Those words are interchangeable. They are inseparable there is no obedience without faith. There is no faith without obedience. There is a relationship between believing in Jesus and obeying his word that is automatic all throughout scripture. The biblical authors give no room for disobedience for those who have received Christ. Never when men 
or women disobeying scripture, do they say, it's okay. That's just not the text. It's never in the Bible. I'm like, eh, it's okay. When, when, when you look in, uh, in Paul's letters to, to Timothy, there are two men who Paul claims are believers. And when these men disobey, Paul will say, it's okay, they're covered by grace. Just grace, grace, grace. Be gracious, gracious, gracious. It's okay, it's okay. What he says is discipline them. Literally remove them from your presence because they're believers. Let the, let the, let the, let the Lord wrench their hearts of their sin so they would return redeemed in that redeemed nature in whom they, in Christ that they already have. So, so there is not this softened version of Christianity in the Bible. The Bible's very, very strict on rules. And the problem we have with that today is it looks like legalism. But the biblical authors give no room for that disobedience for those who have received Christ. And it is assumed, this is assumed, and it's, the assumption is made text after text after text in Scripture, that believers will follow their Lord, Jesus, and they will obey his word. And it's not just assumed, it's encouraged, and it's warned, for, and there's a warning against not doing it. But here's the thing, we, we hear language like that, like, oh, strict obedience, Ew, that's like rule following. Didn't Jesus follow all the rules for us so we don't have to? No, who taught you that? Because that's not the gospel. Jesus fulfilled the law, the old covenant law. He f- obeyed every law perfectly, lived a life without sin, fulfilled that law so that we are no longer bound to the law. And then we get Life in Christ, when we believe that, we get freedom from having to live by the law. Instead, we live, Romans 8, by the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do in us? He teaches us how to live according to the new covenant, which is all throughout the New Testament, where there are rules and ordinances and structure and order, things to follow, commands to to obey. Those are rules. And we are commanded to live by them. The difference is, now we have the Holy Spirit who can enable us to live in those rules and by those laws and by that and and, and obey God's commands. And we don't like it because it looks like legalism and we think it looks like legalism because it's strict and it feels and, and appears lawful. But like I said last week, legalism is following the rules without faith. Obedience is following the rules in faith. So the Bible is not legalistic. We know that. And the Bible is Failed, and I mean, say Bible, I'm saying the New Testament order that believers are supposed to live within and live under is filled with commands. And nowhere in Jesus' words or in the New Testament other authors' words are they, do they say things like, you know, you, you can do this. If you don't, that's okay. You'll get there. 
It's just, here is the command, this is what the Christian looks like. And I think language like that freaks us out because, number one, it looks like legalism, and number two, you think, I'm not perfect, you can't expect me to be perfectly obedient. God doesn't expect perfection from you because he knows you can't achieve it. That's what Christ does for you. So he doesn't expect you to be perfect. You know what he expects from you? He expects you to pursue perfection. However, you can't obey him and you can't truly pursue perfection unless you have first received him. So what does it mean to receive Christ Jesus the Lord when Paul says that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord? To receive Jesus means to believe the gospel. This is what we often call salvation or what Romans 3.24 calls justification. That moment when we believe in the gospel, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave and we are justified. God slams his gavel down and says, your sins are forgiven and you have the righteousness and perfection of Christ that is your ticket to heaven. Yet we still live in this sinful flesh today. So there's this battle between our sinful flesh and the pure and perfect righteousness of Christ that we have, and we live that out daily in our expression of either obedience or disobedience. But what exactly must we receive to be saved? Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. this is not on the PowerPoint, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So to receive him means to believe in him. But what must we believe about him? Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there are two requirements for salvation here. One is confession. The point, see what he says there, confess. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's, that confession is part of salvation. But the point is not that saying the words, Jesus is Lord, gets you saved because notice that Paul also says, believe in your heart. So verbal confession is not salvation. And it's not the point. It's not the means of salvation. That verbal expression is the product of genuine belief in your heart. And I know this because 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So you see that? Paul says, confess with your mouth what? What do you confess with your mouth? Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit must have already regenerated your heart for you to make that confession. You're already saved when you say the words, Jesus is Lord, or when you say whatever expression you say to confess your faith in Christ. I believe in Jesus. I confess my sin. I believe Christ died for my sins and rose from the grave. That confession is a product of a regenerated heart that the Holy Spirit has given you through the gift that is not your product, but his product in you, and that gift is faith, Ephesians 2.8. 
So you've been redeemed and justified and saved. So to verbally confess that Jesus is Lord is the product of already believing and you're already saved. He, and, and that's important to note so that you don't think you can just go, Jesus is Lord, saved. Because Paul's talking about your heart. He's talking about a regenerated heart that loves the Lord, that seeks the Lord, that desires the Lord and wants to live for him and has been changed. Nobody in scripture meets Jesus and is not changed dramatically. And those who pretend to be changed and end up not being changed, he says, they, they were never a part of us. So saying it out loud doesn't save you. Faith, faith saves. We are justified by faith. And in being justified or being saved, then you confess that Jesus is Lord. But what must you believe in order to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What change goes on in your head and in your heart? What, if we're going to say Romans 10, 9, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what, what must we believe then? We must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to be saved. You have to believe that. If you ever meet someone who says they're a Christian and they say, but I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. That is an automatic you have to believe that to be saved. And believe in the, belief in the resurrection also assumes that you believe in the death of Jesus, right? I mean, that only makes sense. Since believing that he rose from the dead would make no sense unless you believe that he also died. How does he rise from the dead if he's not dead? So you also believe that he died. So what the resurrection does here, the word or this statement that Paul gives in Romans 10, 9, when he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That statement about believing in the resurrection is a summary of the, of the gospel. That phrase summarizes the entirety of the gospel. It includes, or I should say, it assumes you already believe everything that came before the resurrection. Because to believe in the resurrection only makes sense if you believe everything that Christ did before it. So it's a summary statement. So to say or to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead is to believe also in his death. Meaning salvation is believing or having faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. But this also cannot just be head knowledge. Just mental awareness. Simply acknowledging that a man named Jesus lived, died, and vanished from his grave is not sufficient for salvation. Even people who reject Christianity, whether they're atheists or whatever they believe, there are people who reject Christianity, cannot deny the historical evidence that there was a man named Jesus who lived, who died, and vanished from a grave, and they just don't have an explanation. We do. The Word of God does. The testimony of Jesus himself does. So just acknowledging that he died and rose isn't enough. What do we have to acknowledge then? Remember in Romans 10, 9, it says, believe in your heart. So what makes the difference between just acknowledging facts and believing in your heart? The difference is knowing what he died for. That's the key. Jesus didn't just die. He died for the sins of his people. Psalm 51 says that we are all conceived into sin, meaning we're all conceived into the sin nature 
and live out and express that sinful nature when we're born. From the moment we're conceived to the moment we are saved, all we do is express sin. We are completely and totally depraved. There is 0% of goodness in us. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, No one does good. No one desires God. No one seeks after him. We are all depraved. There is no good in any of us from the moment we are conceived until we meet Christ. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes that sinful nature that we are conceived into and then act out and walk in in our life. And he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's unbelievers, among whom we all once lived, we were those sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Given that this is our natural condition from conception in our mother's womb, salvation must rescue us from this condition. So believing only that Jesus died is not sufficient. We must believe that Jesus died for this, that he died for our sinful nature, that he died for our sins, that he died to renew us and to restore us from our sinful nature. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once. Why did he suffer? For sins. Belief in Jesus' death must include belief in his death being a sacrifice for our sins. Which means we also must believe that we are sinners in need of salvation. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Note that we're talking about, I'm, I'm in, in the process of explaining to you this need for Jesus before you have him. You're a sinner conceived into sin. And then now, and, and, um, and before you get saved, you need to confess that you're a sinner. And so a believer might look at 1 John 1.8 and say, oh, that's for the unbelievers who don't know that, how much they need Jesus. They need to recognize their sin. And, and, and if they don't, then they don't get saved. That's not what that text is saying. This text is written to Christians. If a Christian says, I have no sin, then this text says, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. This is a constant, daily, endless awareness of our own depravity that we still carry with us, except that depravity has been destroyed and conquered in Christ. So we as believers, shouldn't look at ourselves and say, yeah, now I'm living redeemed. Now I live without Christ. Now I live in Christ. So I am no longer, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, dead in my trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, living like a son of disobedience, living by the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And it, that's no longer who I am. Yeah, but you are on the precipice of going back to it. And the only means by which you have to not jump back into that pool of disgusting, putrid, sinful nature is Jesus. 
which is why the daily and constant and endless pursuit and passion and desire for the Lord himself needs to be on the front of your lips and the tip of your ears and in front of your eyes always, always, because that's what believers do. They persevere. So to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that means you believe in the death and resurrection and his death is for your sins and his resurrection is from the grave. And what does that mean about your sins? It means he carried your sins on his cross. And it means when he's buried, he's carrying your sins to the grave. And it means when he is resurrected, your sins stay dead. And your life is now his life. And his life is now your life. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, what does this mean for us? If I've been united with him in a death like his, it means that I have died to myself when I confess my sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, the old me is dead. I'm dying. The old me has died. And I'm dying a death with Christ. He dies, I die with him. My old self, my sinful nature dies with him when I put my faith in him. And if, Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, then what? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Faith in Christ gives us new life today as well as the promise that we will be resurrected in new bodies and into his glory when he returns. Faith in Jesus gives us that resurrected life today. We will experience it fully in its fullest glory when Jesus returns. So today, and theologians for centuries have all confessed, admitted, and believed that this is just a reality. It's one of these, one of these dichotomies of the Christian faith that is all throughout scripture and it's just this if, or, or I'm sorry, it's this um, already but not yet. I am already redeemed. I'm already perfected in Christ. I'm already perfectly righteous. I am already saved. I am already secure. I am already sure of my salvation. I am already glorified in heaven. This is why Romans 8 uses past tense language when he says, you have been glorified. No, I haven't. I'm still living in this flesh. Yeah, but if you're justified, then you are glorified because you will also be sanctified. So there's this past tense language to glorification. I am already glorified, but also not yet. Which is why 1 John 1, 8 is so important. Yes, I am redeemed from my sin. No, I am not a sinner. No, the Bible does not call believers sinners. It calls them saints. It calls them redeems. It calls them chosen ones. He calls us his sons and his daughters and his children and his beloved he calls us saved. He calls us friends and brothers. That's what he calls us because that's who we already are. And we need to not forget, not yet. Your life of sanctification is a process of fulfilling who you already are. So we can't forget 1 John 1, 8. If we, have, we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not as. That has to stick with us because that's what sanctification is about. I am already free from sin, but today, not yet. 
And only because I already am can I today not sin. And that is the power of the gospel. So what does it mean to live this resurrected life? What does it mean to live in the resurrection today? If I am, if I die a death like his and then I'm therefore attributed in his resurrection, I, I join him, I'm united with him in a resurrection like his, what does that resurrected life look like? Well, our verse, Colossians 2, 6, tells us, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we've covered that already, believe in his death and resurrection for your sins, death for your sins and resurrection from the grave, conquering your death, your death and conquering your sin. What then does a resurrected life look like? So walk in him. That's what a resurrected life looks like. If you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, then your life is now a continuation of living out the resurrected life. And the resurrected life is a life of obedience. Why do we know that? Because Jesus lived a perfect life and the resurrection gives us the perfection of Christ. So our resurrected life should look like Jesus' life. That's the goal, right? That's the aim. No one here would say, I don't want to live like Jesus. I don't want to look like Jesus. All Christians admit we want to look and live like Jesus. That's the goal. We want to be more like him every day. If that's not what you're after, then you're not living a Christian life. That's the whole point. And what did the life of Jesus look like? Perfect and obedient. His life was marked by obedience. He was tempted in every way. Hebrews 4, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And I know you're starting to feel that tension again. Whoa, 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 perfection. Dude, what happened to this whole idea of Christianity being about grace? I don't have to be perfect. Jesus was perfect for me. Jesus' perfection gets you into heaven. Jesus' perfection is then applied to you. And now with Jesus' perfection, you can pursue perfection. Still, you can still feel that tension. Oh, it feels legalistic. It feels too rule-oriented. It doesn't feel like the gospel I grew up listening to where it was like, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. Yeah, you have to obey, but when you don't, it's okay. That's what grace is for. And you know what? That's true. But it's not okay. That is what grace does. It does cover your endless failure to obey. That is the beauty of grace. But it's not okay. I'll explain that a little more. There is a relationship between faith and obedience that the biblical authors automatically assume. And they assume it so confidently that many of the biblical texts about our obedience are written in a specific format. And that format is a conditional statement. So a conditional statement is an if-then statement, right? If this happens, then that happens. If this is true, then that is true. So the conditional statement reveals the condition of something. It makes something conditional. If A is true, then B is true. So if B is not happening, then A is not happening. Make sense? I'll give you an example from Scripture re referring specifically to faith and obedience. Hebrews 3.14 For we share in Christ 
we just stop there, it's like, yay, done. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. No one can tell me how to live. I share in Christ. Period. Done. My life, doesn't matter how I live, I'm going to heaven. I share in Christ. But that's not where the sentence ends. We share in Christ if. Now there's a condition. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That conditional statement could be misunderstood to mean that you only get saved if you behave for the rest of your life. That's not what that's saying. It could also be misunderstood that, to mean that you get saved and then if you don't obey, you lose your salvation. Not what that text is saying. Neither of those are the meaning. The meaning is what Paul assumes in our Colossians 2 verse 6 text. That those who believe genuine faith in Christ will, will hold firm to Christ until the end. They will continue to believe in their original confidence that Jesus' death paid for their sins and that his resurrected life is now activated in your life. The saints of God will persevere. If they don't, they aren't saints. Meaning those who genuinely believe in their heart that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the grave, conquering their sin and death, have new life in the Spirit, and the Spirit will absolutely cause, that word I'm using on purpose, cause your continued obedience to God and His Word. Now, these conditional statements throughout Scripture reveal the there's a reason they're written this way. They reveal something very important. They reveal the gravity of obedience. Obedience is not separate from faith. Again, I told you that earlier. Legalism is separate from faith. Obedience is faith. Read James. He has an entire chapter explaining that if you say you have faith in Christ and you don't live like it, you're not saved. Because he says, show me a life of faith without works and what I'll show you is someone who's not saved. And if you're thinking, well, then the solution to my problem is just to behave all the time. That's not the answer. Christ is the answer. And when you run to Christ and jump into his arms and believe in his death and believe in his resurrection for your, believe in his death for your sins and his resurrection from the grave, when you do that, he gives you his spirit and his spirit will lead you to righteousness. He will lead you to perfection. He will cause your obedience. He will work. And then your faith won't be dead. It will be alive because your works will reveal the faith. That cannot be separated. So you don't believe the gospel and then, and then go and do good works and obey and it's separate from faith. They're related. Belief in the gospel is the first act of obedience that the Christian does. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. That's a command. He's telling everybody, repent and believe. That's the first thing we obey. We either do or we don't. If we don't, 
There's no salvation. If you do, you're saved. That's the first act of obedience. That faith that causes that belief doesn't leave you. That faith grows, bounds, and leaps or steps at a time. And that faith grows, because remember I was saying earlier, belief and obedience are completely inseparable. So as belief grows, belief and faith are also the same word basically. So as your faith grows or your belief grows, your obedience grows. Because to not obey is to not believe. And to believe produces obedience. And to obey expresses your belief. So if you continue to live a life with no, no obedience, it might be an indication that there is no belief. There was no original belief in Christ that is continuing to grow. So, again, I, I feel like this all sounds very condemning. You know, like, geez, I gotta follow all these rules. And is there any, like, just hope? There is. We'll get to it. I don't want you to take these statements to mean that if you aren't perfect, then you're not saved. Or if you're going through what some people might call like a spiritual drought or something, that that means you're not saved. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just telling you what the Bible's saying. I'm not making condemning statements about you or where you're at or where this person you know is at. I can't condemn. It's not my job to condemn. That's the Lord's job. I just don't want you to think that I'm saying if you're not perfect, you're not saved. That's not what Scripture is saying. Because scripture does not teach that we will have perfect obedience in this life. And we take that and we go, good, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to be perfect. So every time I fail and every time I sin, it's excused by grace. And all that that produces is continued disobedience. Where what scripture talks about when it refers to perfection is Christ is your perfection. You have Christ. Now live like it. Pursue perfection. Yes, the Bible is very clear. You're not going to reach it in this life. None of you are perfect, and none of you are going to be perfect in this life. That's the Christian reality. But we can't use it as an excuse to not pursue perfection. I want to be like Jesus. And he was perfect. So I want to be like him. I want to be perfect like him. I'm going to pursue perfection. And when I do, I am going to fail. And in that failure, that is when grace catches me as I fall. And then we go, oh, thank you, grace. I'm just going to lay here for the next five years. And anytime anyone says, why aren't you doing anything? I go, grace. That's not what grace was intended to do. Grace catches you when you fall and you fail to meet that perfection and it throws you back up and says, now in the power of Jesus Christ, by his grace, continue, march 
Fight. Live for Christ. Put some effort into it. This is your life. You are fighting for salvation. It was already earned for you. You don't have to earn it, and you can't earn it. But you need to live in it. Don't you want to be like the Son of God? Don't you want to be like Jesus? Isn't that the reason we are here? Don't you come to church because you want to be a little bit more like Jesus when you leave? If not, I don't know why you're here. Because, I mean, the breakfast was good though, right? If you came for breakfast, I understand. But that's not why God brought you here. God brought you here to show you Christ. That grace is meant to throw you up from that failure and, po- and, and empower you toward continuing to fight for that faith and that obedience to his word. That's not legalism. That's not condemning. That is the power of the resurrected Christ. That's what the resurrection does. Every time you disobey, you fall into the grave, and Jesus says, you don't belong there. And he, in his power of the resurrection, lifts you back up from the grave. That is grace. And he says, now go live the life that I have commanded you to live. Amen. And that is the life we're going to look at right now. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5.40, what do, I mean, think... Listen, Jesus' words in Scripture have no more authority than any other word in Scripture. Let's just get that clear. From I don't know if I said that last week, but I'm clarifying it again. Jesus' words in Scripture do not have more authority than the rest of Scripture. Because Scripture tells us that all of Scripture is inspired by who? God. Jesus is God. Jesus says, Peter's words are equal to mine, because Peter's words are mine. The Holy Spirit empowers the disciples or the the apostles to write scripture. So sometimes we kind of err a little bit because we say, well, Jesus said, as if that's more important than what Paul said. It's not. But there is this incredible, beautiful, comforting reality that I love that when I read Jesus' words, it's like my God and my Savior himself in the flesh is talking to me. Now that's also true of anything Paul writes and anything Peter writes. So we need to get that clear. But to hear our Lord and Savior himself in the flesh say these things has this unique feel to it. And what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48 is... You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He does not say, you must be perfect to be saved, or you must reach perfection to stay saved. He doesn't say that. That's not what he means. What Jesus is saying is, your heavenly Father is perfect, You are of your Father, so you too must be like Him. So live your life pursuing perfection. You know what I want my sons to look like? I know you think I'm going to say Jesus, don't you? I'm not. I'll get there, but hold on. First, I want my sons to look like me. I mean, and not only do they physically look like me, I want them to be like me. Now, here's the problem with that. I'm not that great. <laughs> so, 
So then I go, well, maybe not quite like me. So what does that mean for me? It means I need to do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. I need to be more like Christ so that I can raise my sons up and say, follow me. Well, Dad, why are we following you? Because I'm following Jesus. That's what I want my sons to look like. I want my, don't you want your children to be like you? And don't you want to be better so that your children have a great example to follow? And we all want that. We know we fail at it. It's okay. Like, right? Is it okay? No, it's not okay, right? We want to pursue that perfection. Caught myself off guard there. Woo! It's, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor 15 years. That's how ingrained it is in the church. It's okay. No, it's not. It's not okay. It's not okay that my sons get a bad example of God the Father in me. That's not okay. They need a dad who pursues Jesus with all that he is. They have to have that. Or they're not going to know what to do. And then I'm counting on the church to pick up the slack. Or I'm counting on God to just, well, God, I hope one day you just grab a hold of my kids. He's like, uh, dude, I was doing that for 18 years while you were their father and they lived in your home. Okay. Now, for those fathers who maybe didn't do that well and they wish they could have those years back, this is not condemning. This is encouraging. You're not out of time. Watch fathers whose kids are grown up and matured and moved on. Father, pursue Jesus now. And watch God change your life and your adult children's lives. My dad will call me still to this day. I'm 39 years old, not 40. I'm 30. My... My sons are like, well, you're 40. I'm like, I'm not 40. <laughs> I got six months left, man. Give it to let me. Let me have it. <laughs> what was my point? <laughs> <laughs> that I really forgot my point. <laughs> my dad, thank you. Oh, my gosh, you guys. I just, I haven't had a day off in week. I should stop. I should go for it. Okay, my dad, <laughs> my dad still calls me today at 39 years old. I am a grown man, okay? I have my own kids. I do my own parenting. My dad will still call me. And I learned this about 15, 10, 10 years ago, probably. He called me and he gave me a warning. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. That warning came true. I was like, What? And then he warned me again about something else. And that came true. And I was like, I think I should start listening. I'm like 32 years old. I'm like, I should probably start listening to my dad now. Right? Every time my dad speaks to me, he speaks life to me. And now my dad is a godly man. He loves Jesus and he pursues Jesus. He's like an, he's, he's an elder at his church. Like he serves the church and stuff. Your dad doesn't need to be that to speak life to you. I think God has given dads and mothers, of course, 
a special relationship to their kids to speak life into them. And your life, as an example, speaks volumes to your kids. And my dad, his life now serves to me as an encouragement of he's, I don't know if he's going to like that I'm sharing his age, but he's in his 60s pursuing Jesus and growing more now than he ever has in his life. That encourages me to never give up and to continue. And the whole reason I bring that up about being a great example of godliness to your kids and pursuing the perfection is that I want and don't you want your kids to be like you as you're like God. Don't you think that that's what God wants from you as his child? To be like him? Isn't that why we have verses that say, imitate God? We have to pursue perfection. That means we have to obey. That's not legalism. That is the resurrection at work in your life. Jesus, all, or not Jesus, Peter says in Peter 1, 15 through 16, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is an encouragement. Scripture does not condemn believers. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. Scripture doesn't condemn. It encourages us toward obedience. But these conditional statements about obedience, though not condemning, they are a warning to believers that if they truly believe, then you will follow the word and obey and grow in Christ. So these conditional statements can appear condemning if we consider what happens if we don't follow them. That's why they're written as conditions, because the condition reveals the warning, if then, and if there's no if, then there's no then. That's how the warning is presented. So it sounds condemning, but to the believer, it's encouraging. I want to live the then. So I know that the if is true. And they serve as a warning against, against false conversion, which has filled the American church. So many Christians, I'm sorry, whoop, so many people claiming to be Christians who have no faith in Christ and don't obey. Titus 1.16 tells us about them. They profess to know God, but they deny him. How do they deny him? What is the evidence that they deny what they profess? By their works, they don't obey. They profess to know God, but they don't obey. And what do we know about these people? Verse 16, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. That is not the description of the Christian. That is the description of the unbeliever. And that unbeliever needs Jesus. Because that unbeliever is every single one of us without Christ. And the conditional statement throughout Scripture, more conditional statements confirm this. In John 15, 10, this is what Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
The condition for remaining loved by Jesus is our obedience to his command. That does not mean you will lose your salvation if you don't obey. It means true believers will obey. The conditional statement is revealing that those who love Jesus will keep his commandments. This happened yesterday. I was writing that verse, tick, 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 on my computer, and I'm like, yeah, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. The conditional statement is revealing that those who love Jesus will keep his commandments, period. And now there were people in the church, kids running around, and I'm typing that sentence out, and I hear my wife in here trying to get my children who are in this room to stop running around and being crazy. <laughs> and I hit period on that sentence, and I come out here, and the only thing on my head is, if you love me, you will obey me. And I took my two boys, and I said, boys, do you love me? And they're like, like, I don't ask them that question that often. I just tell them I love them, and they tell me they love me. I don't ask them, do you love me in such a way? And they were like, they straightened up, they're like, yeah? I was like, then why don't you obey me? And they, their disposition whoo, shifted so fast. I watched the word of God, the words of Jesus, transform my children in an instant. And I stood up like, oh my goodness, the Bible works. <laughs> that, we don't believe it just because it works like that, right? But it worked. That's what God, that's what God, that's what Jesus is saying. Do you love me? And we're like, yeah, Jesus, we love you. He's like, then obey me. You will not perfectly obey, but we do need to pursue perfect obedience. And that's when grace steps in, when we fail to lift us back up to pursue that perfection. And Jesus goes on to confirm this condition again just a few verses later in John 15, 14. And he says, you are my friends. Again, put a period there. Thanks, Jesus. See you in heaven. No, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus also confirms this condition in John 8.31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And abide means remain. So what if I don't remain in his word? What if I don't keep his commandments? What if I don't do what he commands? then according to Jesus, you do not love him, you are not his friend, and you are not his disciple. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't obey God that well, so I guess I'm not saved. That's, maybe you're not, I don't know. Maybe you are, and maybe this is today, this message is God speaking to you and saying, you have the faith of Christ Today's the day when I wake you up and tell you how important it is to obey me and to follow me. Today is the day when you shake off the sin that is running your life. Amen. Not because you're good enough to shake it off, but because you depend on and trust in and run to and pursue Jesus. You're never going to shake that sin off if you just try to obey. You will only shake that sin off when you run to Christ, and this is where he is found. This is what changes your life. Don't just leave today going, oh, I better just be better. That's not going to work. You've tried that already. It's proven unworkable. Have you tried this? Have you tried the word? Yeah, I read it, you know, 
I read it. I mean, how many times have, like, for those of you who've been around this whole time that I've been here at Grace Church, six and a half years, how many times have I finished my sermons like, here's the, here's the application, read your Bible. <laughs> right? Like, you're like, yeah, we get it, read our Bible. I, I just, I think some of you are. I think everybody needs more. No doubt. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't need more time in the Word, myself included. Right? (laughs) This is why I love you guys. Keeping me in check. I like it. We all need more of it. More Word. How can you expect to know how to obey or what commands to obey or what obedience looks like or what the righteous life looks like or what Christ looks like if you don't know what Christ looks like. You know what we do? We create images and ideas of Jesus that we shape in our head. We got this verse here and that verse there and I took that verse from 10 years ago and I remember this verse from when I was a kid and I just read that verse two months ago. I got three verses. Uh, I'm going to shape Jesus out of these three verses. That's like having three crayons and trying to draw a masterpiece. It's going to look like a kid drew it. That's what we make Jesus look like in our head. That's the Jesus we follow, and it's not good enough. And he's like, I have more than all the colors in the world to create the masterpiece that is Jesus Christ, and all of those colors are in the Bible. You just need to pick it up and watch Jesus reshape and reformulate and recreate your faltered version of who he is, and you will fall deeper in love with him. He will become more beautiful than you could ever comprehend because he is an inexpressible God, meaning there are no words to express how glorious and great and grand and perfect and beautiful he he really is. And when he does that in your life and he changes and reshapes the way you think about him, you will not be able to withhold radical obedience to Jesus. That, that is what the resurrection of Jesus does to your mind, to your life. That resurrected Jesus allows us to do what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.14. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And 2 Peter 1.10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That is diligence to pursue Christ, to confirm your calling and election. And as Jesus says in John 15.8, prove to be my disciples. And who did Jesus say are his disciples? Those who do what he That is what the resurrected life looks like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We know we fail at obedience constantly. Constantly. And we fall gloriously and happily into your grace. That's what the gospel does. We love that. But let your grace not be an excuse to stay there. Let your grace be the power that motivates us towards greater obedience, which means we have to know you better. Help us know you better. Draw us into your word. Or as Jeremiah says, I found your words and I ate them and they became to my heart a delight. We pray this 
in Jesus' name.